So we start, we begin again today in our series this summer, a summer preaching series on avoiding stupid. And uh, I'm going to be encouraging you today to avoid stupid in our training of the next generation. And you'll hear that I have a one-point sermon. In fact, you'll get so sick of the one point uh, that you'll not feel to ever forget it. And that's my point, <laughs> that you won't forget that I hammer on it. And I want to center the message initially here on the country of Israel. Uh, the, the Old Testament shows us that the country of Israel, Israel was the apple of God's eye. Uh, the Jewish people were God's chosen people. Uh, that would have been all well and good if they hadn't been so rebellious uh, and had chosen to stray from his path constantly. At one point, they demanded that God give them a king. Do you recall when that occurred? After the judges, when everybody was doing right in his own eyes, the people decided that they needed to have a king, an earthly king. It wasn't enough that they had a heavenly king. And in fact, I would go so far to say as they rejected God as their heavenly king and wanted a human figurehead to rule over them. If you've studied the Bible, you know that the lineage of the kings is a horrible one indeed. Much poor leadership. Saul was the first. He was anointed to be king, yet he was miserable as a king. He struggled mightily with what I would call pathological insecurity, jealousy, control, even mental health issues, and spiritual warfare, dying a pathetic death. David was his successor, and we know David to be a man after God's own heart, but David had his own sin problems, didn't he? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he was not a good dad. Solomon is an example of that. Uh, he reigned during a period of peacetime, a lengthy period, but he had his own set of character flaws, as we will discover today as we look at one of his proverbs. Israel succumbed to idolatrous worship throughout their history after they had divided into a kingdom. There's nearly no good kings in either Israel or Judah. Perhaps the case certainly could be made for Hezekiah and Josiah, but of the 20 who ruled in Israel, there really was not even one good king among them. Largely, the Jewish people languished with kings who were evil and who allowed their people to fall into the captivity of pagan countries. How is it? that so many kings could be so poor at what they were entrusted to do, that God had entrusted them with the sovereign responsibility to reign with righteousness as his earthly kings. They were to point him. They were to point all, everyone else to him, to God. Didn't happen most of the time. You know, it really is no different for us today. We think about today, what do those kings have to do with us that means nothing to me, Bob. What do you mean? Well, we as fathers and mothers, both biological fathers and mothers and spiritual mothers and fathers, we have a responsibility to bring up this generation in the way that God wants us to bring the generation up. So I'm going to talk about something today that's very controversial. I'm going to get into your grill on parenting. And some of you might even be a little bit annoyed with me today. I hope I don't do it intentionally. I'm going to try to walk this path very sensitively, but I don't want to depart from the Word of God. The truth of God's Word is what we should be following as we parent our children. Whether they're our own biological children or we're attempting to disciple someone else, we need to lead them in the way that God desires them to go. 
I hope I don't anger you today, that's for sure. I'm definitely not holier than thou. So Molly's exactly right. She knew there would be some disclaimer that I would bring in here where I said, I've learned a lot of mistakes as a, through a lot of mistakes as a parent. There are times when I have not shown grace. The last time I preached, I told the story of Molly writing a note to me and the grace that she showed me where she says, dear dad, I can't believe I still love you. <laughs> Remember that? And, and she had every right to say that because I had acted in a very ungracious way and I wasn't very tolerant of her five-year-old mentality, what she wanted to do on a day when I wanted to do something entirely different. I've made my mistakes and I continue to make mistakes as a parent, uh, such as a reality that humbles me. Uh, I also hope you walk out of this service not with the spirit of, of discouragement, but with the spirit of encouragement, of hope, really there's no thing that you've done that's behind you that you should go back and revisit. If there's shame, if there's guilt, if there's despair over something that's happened, put it behind you. From this day forward, would you have hope? Could you see from the Word of God that you can move forward in a very positive and righteous way? The past is past. God is the God of redemption. There is hope. Even if you've had a challenging life as a child or a parent, we can all move in a more positive direction. You know, this message is for everyone in this audience. Every single one of you. I'm going to be speaking to children. Children, please listen. I see some children that I know well in this body. We can't not know children well here, although there's new ones being birthed constantly. It's true we don't know them that well, but as they grow up before us, children, you need to listen to this message because it's for you. Parents and grandparents, you should also be listening very carefully because the message is for you as well. It offers a very memorable exhortation to you. Even if you do not have children, how many of you in here don't have children? Raise your hand if you don't have children. Yes, thank you, Mac. You don't have children yet, Mac, and that's a good thing right now in your life. Even if you do not have children, this message is for you as well. Toward a better path of all of us today, I have a one-point sermon. You ready? You don't have to write this down even. I think you'll remember it. Some of you don't take notes. I'm one of those guys that takes copious notes as I'm interacting with the message. I'm listening. I'm making sense of it. I'm writing down things that weren't even said that, want, that helped me internalize what the new ideas are and how I'm going to change. And I hope you walk out of here with this one-point message, a changed person, that you'll do some things differently and that you'll act differently, not because you want to be pharisaical or legalistic about doing things that you think will please God, but you want to do things to please God, just to worship him and be in his presence. Here's the point. Disciple the next generations. Disciple the next generations. Well, where are the answers to life? Here are where the answers to life are. The answers to life lie in the word of God. This is where we should be constantly reflecting, memorizing, reading, meditating upon sharing our views with others in a small group as we think about the Word of God. Now, not that happened earlier this morning. Yeah, that was good. It's just for a little comic relief. And my, my son-in-law, Jake, who's a fine man, is going to help me here. Oh, really? Seriously? That was not good. Oh, Bob, come on. I'll get it together. <laughs> How did that happen, Alexander said. That, a foolish speaker, an unprepared speaker. Okay, let's get into the proverb. A proverb 
is not a promise. A proverb states a general truth or a piece of advice. A proverb, as you'll see on the screen, is a shorthand for situations in life that recur often enough that people feel they need to have a name for them. Just an interesting way to describe what a proverb does. And so the proverb that I'm going to take for, for you and unpack today is Proverb 26, uh, 22, 6, which Molly read. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So let's break that down. Train up. Train up. Who's doing the training? You know, my, my daughter, who's a ninth grade English teacher, will know who's doing the training. If you paid attention in your seventh, eighth, or ninth grade English class, you know grammar. Who is doing the training? You. It's not said there, it's the you understood. Remember your grammar class when you were in school? You understood. It's an exhortation. It's an imperative. I'm, I'm saying to you, you, train up a child. So the object of my, uh, Solomon's pronouncement here, actually it's David speaking to Solomon. Solomon is actually quoting David, speaking to him, you, train up a child in the way you should go. So let's, let's establish that first. Train up. Train up. What's that word mean in the context there of uh, the Old Testament language? It means to direct, to dedicate, to consecrate. It's a solemn, sacred act where we are taking someone and we're putting them sort of on the altar. It's sort of like Romans 12.1 where we offer our lives as living, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. We offer our children to the Lord. We dedicate, we consecrate, we, we are ready to say to these children, here's what you need to learn. We don't control our children. We don't micromanage our children. We're not, we're not helicopter parents. We're not Velcro parents. We're just attached to them constantly. Children need to have the ability to gain more and more independence as they move through life. Of course, I think about my, my grandbabies. I think about Lily and I think about Graceland. They don't, when they're born, you have to do everything for them. They're completely dependent on their parents. In this case, Hannah and uh, Molly and Jake. They are completely dependent. They have to be. They don't know what to do. But as they develop, they definitely get smarter. And they understand things. In fact, I think they understand a lot more than we give them credit for. I'm amazed as I'm watching Graceland at 15 months what she can understand. I'm amazed in watching Lily, who's a little over a year, when you say something to her and it all clicks and bang, she's off. Anybody who's raised children or grandchildren, you've seen this, you know this to be the case. At a point, though, children need to have some independence. They need to be allowed the opportunity to do things that they can do for themselves. In fact, I would be so bold as to say that no parent should ever do for a child what he or she can do for himself. I hope you agree with that. There's a lot of times, though, I'm, failure. I'm a failure. I admit it. Do as I say, not as I do. I'm an enabler. All right? All right? There's shoes on the floor throughout the house. There's wet towels in a particular room in the house. There's lights that are left on in every room of the house. The dishes that are set out all over the house. What does Bob do? Bob's OCD. Dr. OCD I am. I'm picking up after everyone. I'm helping. Am I really helping though? What, what those people, I'm not naming any names right now, what those people need is they need to do the, some things themselves. And I shouldn't enable them. Right? That's parenting. 
During the message community last week, I was intrigued by a name that Denny Ogden brought up. Some of you are going to know this name. Some of you are not. Todd Marinovich. For most of you in this room, none of you even has a clue. Todd Marinovich, who's that? Here's who Todd Marinovich is. Todd Marinovich's dad was Marv. That's definitely not a word you're going to, name you're going to remember. But Marv Marinovich had it in his mind that his son was going to be an NFL quarterback. And from the time that kid was literally in the crib, he did everything to train up Todd Marinovich to be an NFL quarterback. Every single action, diet, physical regimen, clinics, camps, Marv once commented, some guys think the most important thing in life is their jobs, the stock market, whatever. To me, it was my kids. The question I asked myself was, how well could a kid develop if you provided him with the perfect environment? So that's what he did. And Todd Marinovich became his idol. This child became his idol. That's another thing, just as a little bird trail here. We, we cannot make our children our idols. We cannot place our whole lives into children. We love them unconditionally. We nurture them. We care for them. We disciple them. But we don't make them our idols. That's what Marv did with Todd. At one point in his life, Todd had never eaten a Big Mac, and this is up into his young adulthood, an Oreo or a Ding Dong. Not that any of those foods is really good for any of us anyway, and we probably shouldn't be eating them anyway, but there was really a strict diet that he ate that included when he went to a birthday party as a kid, he'd take his own cake and ice cream to avoid sugar and refined white flour. It's crazy. His mom would make homemade ketchup prepared with honey. He didn't consume beef, but the kind that was uh, not injected with hormones. He ate only unprocessed dairy products. He teased on frozen kidney and liver. When he was one month old, he was already doing stretches, stretch, stretching exercises on the couch. One month old, he was stretching out his hamstring. Can you imagine a little baby where the dad is, I mean, I can literally do it like this, can't I? <laughs> it's crazy. He also put him on a ba balance beam. And he did this stretching, and he didn't put him on a balance beam, and he helped him f do a new exercise where he took a medicine ball and put it from the floor onto the a counter before he was even walking. I mean, I hope you can see that this is a, a, a warped view and, and example of parenting. And just so you know that it wasn't overly warped, uh, he did have a football in his crib from day, day one, Marv said, not a real NFL ball. That would be sick. It was a stuffed ball. Wow. Marv, what a, what a great parent you are. What restraint. But it happened. He started an elite Catholic high school in California. He went to the University of Southern California, and he did become an NFL quarterback for the Oakland Raiders. But that's not the end of the story. Long after his professional career had ended, he became... Uh, Marv became known as one of the worst sports fathers ever in history. Now, that's not the legacy that I want to have in my life as a parent. And his son actually was uh, elected uh, in, at one time in an ESPN poll as one of the biggest busts as an athlete. What happened to him? He smoked marijuana daily. He eventually got addicted to heroin. He was arrested for drug possession. He served several months in various jails. Uh, he was arrested at a skate-burning area with methamphetamines and syringes. He violated probation. Uh, he had several inpatient treatment program uh, 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 opportunities. He was in and out of those rehab facilities, was rearrested. And you know what? He was no longer an NFL quarterback. What he did for a living is he scraped barnacles off boats in California. 
Right? I don't want to disparage anybody that scrapes barnacles off boats in California, but that's not NFL quarterback. That's not what Marv Marinovich trained him up to be. Can we all agree that Marv Marinovich trained him up to be a quarterback, but he failed miserably as a father in training him up morally and with his character. He failed in character development. So you train up a child. What does child mean in the original language? It means a youth or a young man in this context. I'm going to be so bold though too. Young women, those of you who are out there in the audience, you students, you younger people that are not quite 18, 18, you know, really you're considered an adult of voting age, but up to that point, you're a child, right? I don't mean to disparage you with that, that term, but you're young, all right? This particular passage per- pertains to people like Caleb, I would think, a young man who's just learning to be a man. He is. He's really, truly learning to be a man. I've seen Caleb. I know Caleb well. I've witnessed Caleb. I've witnessed his father's discipling of Caleb. And this is what I imagine. This is David speaking to Solomon. I could just imagine Jay speaking to Caleb in the same way. I want to train you up, Caleb. I want to train you up. You're a young man, but I want you to be a godly man, that you'll be a great husband, that you'll be a great father, that you'll be a great leader in your community, that you'll be a great person in the workplace. Whatever you do, that you'll do for the glory of God. Train up a youth. Train up a youth in the way he should go. That should make you think about Jesus talking about the narrow way, the narrow path. The path is narrow. There are expectations. God has high expectations. In the Old Testament, God the Father said, be holy as I am holy. We sang about it today. Be holy as I am holy. Jesus said, be perfect. Does God the Father or Jesus or the Holy Spirit believe that we will be perfect? He wants us to be. He knows, though, because of sin that we won't be, but he calls us to a high standard. He doesn't dumb the standard down. He calls us to a state of righteousness and holiness. And so, young people, young people, your parents are attempting. Yes, thank you. That's good. Right from Brian Keith. That's good. That's right. Young people, your parents are attempting to disciple you to become godly, to become righteous, to make that choice for yourself, right? Not because they believe it, Although that's the first step. They must believe it for you to be able to believe it. They must model it for you to eventually behave that way. They must be transparent when they mess up and they say, I messed up. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm not going to go there again. I have just, I've just dishonored God in the way that I've treated you as a parent. Last time I preached, I preached on a passage where fathers were called in Ephesians to not exasperate their children. And you heard me tell my story about Molly. I exasperated her. And she showed great grace uh, in response to me. Wasn't, well, maybe it's not great grace. It was good grace. It was grace where she still showed that she loved me in the whole process. So we are, as I said, in my one point, to disciple the next generations. Parents are charged with the responsibility of discipling their children. But children must, not, must also take the responsibility for staying on the right path. Kids do not depart from the path. Each of us is kids, isn't we though? Oh, isn't we? <laughs> Sorry. Aren't we? <laughs> Aren't we all kids? We're God's children. We are God's children. And as such, we get all bent out of shape when our kids are not behaving around us. Yet if we were really honest and clear about it, we mess up all the time. And we basically spit at God and tell God, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go independent on this thing. I'm going to go outside your law. I'm going to go outside your your, your expectations and the commands of Scripture. The Jewish kid in that time, in the Old Testament, 
were taught the, the, the Pentateuch. And most of those kids had memorized the first five books of the Bible. Can you believe that? Memorizing those? There's a couple of those would be challenging uh, in and of themselves. But if you get into all the genealogies and all the things that are happening, and this begat that, and she begat him, and they begat her, and all that jazz, it's just amazing to think how well they would have known the Word of God. How well do we know the Word of God today? How well are we as parents teaching our children to know the Word of God? And children, how well are you absorbing the truth that your, children, that your parents are giving you? How well are you listening and absorbing that truth and living out that truth? Again, not in a legalistic way, but because you want to please God. You want to honor God. You want to honor Christ. And I find it very ironic that uh, David is writing this passage to Solomon. We, we remember that Solomon is the writer of most of the Proverbs. And he's charging, David is charging Solomon to live in accordance with the truths of God. And what happens? <laughs> Solomon strays mightily, doesn't he? He takes on... Hundreds of wives and concubines. I love my wife. I do. I cherish her. We're going to celebrate 32 years of marriage in August. I have a hard time pleasing one wife. All right? I do. It's not because of her. It's because of me. I, I, I'm, I have sin. And I struggle. I, I, I'm sure that Solomon wouldn't have been able to please all of those women. And he violated God's law by doing it anyway. So he strayed immediately in that, and we know lots of things about Solomon, that he, he was absorbed by the world. He, he became conformed by the world rather than be, being transformed by the truth of God's word. What he knew in his heart, what David had taught him. He had free will, and so what did he do with that free will? He accumulated wealth, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, pools, slaves, herds, flocks, silver, gold, and all those wives and concubines I spoke about. And what happened? He drifted away from God. The same as any of us. Well, Bob, I don't have all those riches. I don't have all that stuff. I, you, you, do a mental exercise. Tick it off in your list. Get a litany in your own mind of the things that are happening in your own life, which you have the same things in your life where you're worshiping things, where you're accumulating stuff, and it really is distracting you from God. And I'm not saying that to be, you know, negative. I'm just saying that we all need to do a gut check on that, a heart check. For me, it's reading. Now, I'm in the Word a lot, but I could work, be in the Word a lot more if I wasn't reading so many books. I read books. I read one book a week. I, I don't say that to brag. It's just that God gave me the ability to read fast and to comprehend what I'm reading. And that's a good thing in one way, but it's a bad way, thing in another in that it distracts me from the Word of God and I'm not in the Word of God as much as I should be. Right now, I've got, I'm going to have to be clean with you completely. I'm, I've got a kick for Vince Flynn novels. I'm sorry. I'm in the trilogy, the Mitch Rapp trilogy, the Mr. CIA assassin, the American assassin. He's an amazing writer, but there's some less than wholesome stuff in those books. I've got to come clean with you. It's distracting me. What's your distraction? What's your idol? What are the things and the activities in your life that are keeping you from worshiping the one true God? And one of the greatest ways to worship the one true God is to be in the Word of God, to be meditating upon it, memorizing it. I'm, we're going on vacation next week. Oh, this week. We're going on vacation. Well, sort of. We're going on vacation this week. And I've taken it upon myself that I'm going to memorize as much of Ephesians as I can. In the two weeks that we're on vacation, well, and I'm gonna, next time I stand before you, or, you know, hold me accountable. When you see me in the hallway, well, how much of Ephesians have you memorized? 
And if I give you some lame excuse like, oh, yeah, I really wanted to do that, but didn't quite get around to that. Stuff happened. Life happened. You know, it just that's the way it is. That's a lame excuse. It's bad. Hold me accountable. I mean, I just can't stand up here in front of you and exhort you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. We need to be in the Word of God. We need to be drawn close to God. Solomon did not. He understood the follies of his ways, and he declared them in Ecclesiastes as vanities and a striving after the wind. And you know, he concluded that book by saying this, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That is the message. Disciple the next generations. And here's how you do it. You fear God yourself. You keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. As a parent or a grandparent or a spiritual parent or a spiritual grandparent, you do that for them. You help them in a, in a non-judgmental, loving, nurturing way, but with accountability to disciple them with the word of God. Okay, what's success? What's success look like to a parent? You know, if I train up a kid in the way he should go, does that mean that our kids are angels all the time? Anybody here in the room have a, a perfect angel for a child? I, I, you're not going to raise your hand. Oh, you do. Peggy does. Oh, Molly's a perfect child. Awesome. She's the first one I've ever met. I'm not going to take that for a hard and fast answer either. I love Molly, but I know that Molly's not perfect. I know that she has a sin nature the same as any of us in this room has a sin nature. Our children are not going to act perfectly. Molly apparently comes as close to the ideals as possible. That's awesome. All right? But don't view your role as a parent and your being a success as a parent as that your kids just behave because they could be behaving on the outside, but on the inside they have a rotten, dirty, ugly core and the reason their motivation for behaving just to please you. We all know the story of the mother who's attempting to quiet her young son and get him to sit down in a medical waiting room while several others look on. Eventually the boy grudgingly sits down, but he complains to his mother, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. That's how a lot of us are. Now we can behave externally. We can show things that we are uh, doing according to God, things according to God's will and in God's ways, but we might not have the right motivation. We might have a, just a blackened heart about the whole thing. Shouldn't the definition for success be that our children are willingly following God's commands? Shouldn't it be that sometimes they're going to fall down, they're going to stub their toes, they're going to skin their knees, and when it comes to the area of sin and making mistakes, they're kids after all. And that we are there with them. You know, I had an interesting dialogue with Denny in message community. He asked the question, which is better, that you have a great relationship with your kids or that your kids are behaving all the time? He's a realist. He knows that not, well, of course you'd like that. We'd like both of those. It's an unfair question, isn't it? I, I shouldn't even ask that question. You want your kids to behave all the time. But isn't it true that the reason we want our kids to behave all the time is because that's a reflection on us if they don't? That we're embarrassed if our kids aren't b behaving well? Hey, our kids are going to mess up and they have to be responsible for their own behaviors. And you as a parent shouldn't anymore take credit for their successes than you should take responsibility for their failures. It's my view. They have to be able to stand up on their own two feet and, and take responsibility for, for honoring God and for dishonoring God, the same as any of us has to do. So success is not kids just behaving uh, well. So I would much rather have a relationship with my daughters. I would much rather have a relationship with my grandchildren so that I can nurture them. And even in spite of my shortcomings, even in spite of their shortcomings, that there's a bond, that they respect me and they know that I respect them. They love me and I love them. 
There's this relationship that's built that's no matter what's ha- what happens in our lives, that we can stand on the foundation of that relationship. This is for everybody too. Uh, I told you this at the beginning. This is for everybody. Because if, even if you don't have kids, Mac, you should be, you're out of high school, right? You're in college now, aren't you? So you go to college, you should be finding somebody in your path that you can disciple as a spiritual child. And then Mac, if you, if you lead that girl, it's going to be a girl. <laughs> don't hang around with boys. That don't know, well, you can hang around with boys, but keep you know, being godly in front of them. But don't date ungodly boys, okay, Mac? Okay, promise me? All right, thank you. But when you are discipling a young woman and she comes to the, know the Lord, you have a spiritual child, don't you, Mac? And when she, that girl, leads another girl to the Lord, you have a spiritual grandchild. And when that child leads another girl, you have a spiritual great-great-grandchild. And you're not even, are you 20 yet? You're not even 20 yet, are you? You can have great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren if you're doing the job according to what the Bible calls us to do. That is, to disciple the next generations. And perhaps we should listen to uh, Eugene Peterson on this matter. Here's the way he paraphrased uh, Proverbs 22.6. He cuts right to the quick as he always does, as no one else can. Point your kids in the right direction, and when they're old, they won't be lost. Disciple the next generation. So what? What am I supposed to do now? What's that look like? Well, I'm going to dump some fuel here as we try to land this plane. Uh, Parents, you know, you have to know the urgency of your responsibility to educate and to disciple your own children. You cannot give that responsibility up to somebody else. You must teach your children. Do not abdicate your responsibility for the education of your children and the spiritual formation of your children to the church in a Sunday school or two, if you do have the wherewithal to go to a Christian school, to a Christian school. It's your responsibility. Ultimately, you will answer to God for that. So teach your children and make God the top priority in your life. Did you know that only 23% of the people in a, in a poll that George Barna cites, only 23% of, the percent of those people said that God was the most important thing and person in their life? 23%, that's ridiculous. Did you know that only 7%, 8% of born-again Christians have a biblical worldview by a measure that's really not that high? We need to have a biblical worldview, disciples. We need to make God number one in our lives. If God is not number one in your lives, your children, are going to, children spiritual children are going to see that and you're not going to be as effective in your relationship and your discipling. Be involved and committed to discipling the next generation. I'm going to tread into some kind of controversial waters here. Let's talk about schooling. Your kids, when they get kindergarten age and they go to kindergarten through the 12th grade, you have an option for them, educational option, all right? The first option is homeschooling. I think that's the most amazing opportunity that anybody can have when he or she is called to that. What a privilege! It's biblical. It's awesome to disciple your own children every day, day in and day out. You choose that route, you, that, that should be the route that all of us could do, but that's not the possibility in our, in our culture nowadays. So if you choose a public school or a Christian school, my advice to you, though, is do not take your foot off the gas or your hand off the wheel. You have got to be involved in the education of your children, whether you choose a Christian school or a public school. I respect every parent's right to choose. 
I'm not ever going to look down on anybody for the choice they make of those three options. But I am going to tell you this, parents. You cannot take your eyes off the road, the path, the way. You have got to be involved and know what's going on in those classrooms. 35, 40 hours a week, it's a lot of hours. One hour a week, it's not very many hours. Whatever you're doing with them at home, I hope you're doing devotions with them. I'm hoping you're word, reading the Word of God. It's not very much. Disciple the next generations, no matter what the school choice. Children, you must know the urgency of your decision to make God your top priority in life to learn about everything which Christ commanded and to follow those commands obediently. And everyone, whether you have children or grandchildren or not, you need to abide in Christ. In other words, sense where he's directing you. Who is the person that I'm going to be discipling? God, show me who that person is and then go disciple that person. And say to that person, okay, we're going to do this for six months, maybe not even that much. Pick a time period. And at the end of that time period, who are we going to disciple after that? And better yet, get a group of people, get two or three other people and say to them, okay, after we're done with this disciple making, who are you going to go disciple? What two people are you going to go disciple? Which two people are you going to go disciple? Which two people am I going to go disciple? Look at the multiplication. Look at the addition to the, to the kingdom when we are exponentially expanding the kingdom of God through disciple making. Several of us from this church uh, Jeff's not here today, but Doug and Dania and uh, Laura and I went to this disciple-making seminar by Scotty Kessler on, on June 13th, and he challenged us with some questions. Do you read the Bible daily or at least five to six days a week? Are you actively memorizing Scripture? Do you know how to study the Bible without a commentary or support material? Have you discipled someone in the last six months? Do you regularly meet with someone to be held accountable in areas in which you know you struggle? Be honest with yourself. I've got to be honest with myself too on those. I, don't, I can't answer those all in the best affirmative a- action, but I want to. I have a desire to, but it's not enough to want to. Give me the want to to do it. That's my prayer. I want to do it. So pray for those opportunities as a disciple. And what you needed to be looking for are fat people. So Scotty said, you need to look for fat people. Faithful, available, and teachable. These are the people that will respond to your discipling. Faithful, approachable, and teachable. Fat. Shouldn't we all be fat in a spiritual sense? Really, if you think about it, it's true. So, be led by the Holy Spirit to disciple. Get rid of the time wasters in your life and choose relationship and spiritual growth over those time wasters. Consistently disciple another person and be discipled by a more mature Christian. As I was preparing this message, I was thinking about some examples. I remembered when we were in in Yemen. And we were having spiritual conversations with people. I thought, what a privilege this is. What a joy. And I think about Jordan, one of the missionaries on the ground. He says, yes, you need to live out the gospel. And so many people say, you know, preach the gospel when necessary. Use words. Baloney. You got to teach the gospel. You got to tell the gospel. If you don't tell the gospel, people don't know what they're saved from. They need the gospel. Or I think about when we were out in the bush, in the middle of the, of the bush in Africa. And on the second day, after we had shown the Jesus film on a gas generator with the film projector, just amazing, there's no power anywhere. This is probably the first films many of these people have ever seen in their lives. And the, the altar call essentially is given, come down, you want to commit your life to the Lord? And I don't know, about 100 people came forward. I think there was 91. 
And what was the pastor and his son doing? As fast as they could, they were writing down names. Why were they writing down names? Because they knew that those people had to be discipled. It wasn't enough to have this mountaintop conversion experience based on a cheesy film. I should probably be a little critical of uh, the Jesus film because it's been really effective. In the native tongue of these people, they came to know the Lord. But the pastor knew that unless he trailed them where they were and how they'd walk for, for miles to even get to that place, if they weren't going to be discipled, they'd just walk away from it. They wouldn't have any knowledge. And it's probably a little harder even in the American culture for us. So let's hold ourselves accountable for that. Uh, let's start somewhere and let's try something. Disciple the next generations. Jonathan Edwards took his responsibility as a disciple of his own children and the people of his congregation seriously. Robert Frick reports that among Edwards' descendants, and you've probably heard this story before, there were practically no lawbreakers. There were more than 100 law lawyers and 30 judges, 13 college presidents, 100 or more professors, over 60 physicians, 100 clergymen, missionaries, and theological professors, 80 elected to public office, including three mayors, three governors, several members of Congress, three senators, and one vice president, Aaron Burr. 60 attained prominence in authorship or editorial life with 135 books of merit, 75 army or navy officers, and a comptroller of the U.S. Treasury. That's a pretty impressive record. What a genealogy. I mean, we know of Jonathan Edwards and what a great and godly and hardworking man he was and how he lived his life out very well before his own children and the generations were positive as a result of that, uh, that parenting. But it's not the whole story. A biographer of his wife, Sarah, wrote, much of the capacity and talent, intensity, and character of the more than 1,400 of the Edwards families is due to Mrs. Edwards. As parents, husbands and wives, or if you're not married, as a spiritual father or mother to somebody else, we have a responsibility to teach them, according to the Great Commission, everything that Jesus commanded, to obey everything that Jesus commanded that way. Do we really understand the impact we can have on future generations? I, I'm not sure we do, and I think we need to come to a better understanding. So, disciple the next generations. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, this is challenging. What we've learned from the word draws us outside of our comfort zones. What we learn from the word is that we have a, a, an obligation, a responsibility, and we shouldn't look at it as an obligation, but rather as a great privilege, an honor, to go make disciples and to teach them everything that Jesus commanded. Father, would you help us, each one of us, uh, toward that end? Today, Lord, as people are walking out, put in their minds, in their hearts, some person that it's time to just reach out, make a call to, and say, hey, how about if we just go hang out together? It doesn't have to be anything, Lord. We know that it's real formal. Just reading through the Word. I think about what I'm doing with, with Moses and Kenny right now. Lord, thank you for leading me to read 15 minutes from the Old Testament, 15 minutes from the New Testament, to talk about what we read, to take prayer requests, and to pray. And we're in and out in an hour. Lord, we can do that. There are other things that we do that are just a monu monumental waste of time. Lord, make those activities come to mind and help us to be more committed to disciple the next 
generations of Christians who will take on the next generations who will take on the next generations. Lord, and when we see you working, as always, we'll give you the praise and honor and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.